first time I saw it was at the producer's house. And they, and they wanted me to get on a, 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 a FaceTime call right after it was done with the director in Los Angeles and with Ray Harris, the guy who put up the f primary financial, and, and, and asked me if I would respond to the movie almost in the moment. And I was like, fuck you. <laughs> Fortunately, Renee had a pretty good-sized backyard, and I went for a walk, you know, because I just was devastated, not because of the film, but because of the memories and the, um, the emotions of it. Welcome to Pondcom Podcast. On January 15th, we did a live viewing of... It was uh, called Love Charlie, The Rise Love. and Fall of Chef Charlie Trotter. Love Charlie. Um, it was the first time we did in any kind of event like that. It was, I thought it was a very beautiful experience from top to bottom. I thought we were really honoring a chef that deserves all the accolades in the world and someone that was a trailblazer in our industry. And we had an opportunity to do a Q&A with Chef Norman that was a huge part of the documentary process afterwards. I thought, you know, something that really struck me in that whole process was there were people that were very familiar with Chef Charlie. There was people that were not super familiar. For me personally, it was a very personal dining experience. Um, back, back up a little bit. Strictly because... Charlie Trotter's food had such an impact on me when I was a young cook, and not only um, an impact from the food that he did, but the people that he surrounded himself with, you know, the other chefs that worked in his kitchens and the chefs that he called friends, you know, one of, one of which has been my mentor for the entirety of my career, pretty much. And, you know, we did a menu that I thought was approachable, but still very much Charlie Trotter, and it was a lot of pressure. We we actually, it was the first time that we've done an event that we involved chefs from all over the company. You know, the chef at Laurel did a did a course, the chef from Ariette did a course, the chef from Nave did a course, and our corporate chef did a course. And, you know, I only did that because I thought, in my mind, I wanted them to focus 100% on that dish that they were doing, not four dishes at the same time. Because, you know, it is a lot of pressure to say that you're doing Charlie Trotter-esque food. You can never replicate the food that Charlie Trotter did. But to even have like that kind of feel and that kind of approach, and um, it was a lot of pressure. For me personally, and I think that once I talked to my chefs and, and I talked to them a little bit about it, they also felt the pressure too. So, you know, uh, we actually partnered with Sip Smith Gin uh, on, this, um, on this event. I thought it was an incredible collaboration. They did a great job. Uh, of performing as partners in this in this event, and you know they paired cocktails with every single um, course that we did, and the cocktails were put together by Andrew McCutcheon, which is general manager of Ariette. So we started with uh, a welcome cocktail of a slow gin fizz, uh, Sipsmith gin with lime and San Pellegrino, super simple, something to open up your palate and get you ready to go. Uh, the fennel salad was really 
kind of like an homage to what's in season in South Florida. So we did fennel from Bee Heaven Farms, mustard vinaigrette, Marcona almonds, Asian pear. The Asian pear was also put into like a broken vinaigrette with sherry vinegar that was uh, kind of like ornately put around the greens and the fennel that was on the plate. Uh, again, all local. And it's something that, you know, when I started reading Charlie's work very early in my life, it was something that he talked about a lot, which is, you know, the best product at the best time every year. Uh, that course was paired with Army and Navy, which was, again, gin, lemon, orgiat, and bitters. Uh, the second course, which was actually my favorite course, which was um, a salmon terrine. It was smoked salmon that was layered with uh, it's almost like a bay leaf. It was a bay leaf garlic butter in between each layer. The bay leaf garlic butter is actually part of our bread service at Laurel. And it was served with a carrot carambola gastrique with red peppers. The carrot and cam- carambola both came from Bee Heaven, and we juiced them, reduced them down, added a little bit of vinegar at the end, and then the red peppers we just steamed lightly and then added it. So it was almost like, uh, again, a broken vinaigrette with juice and so on and so forth. That was paired with a Gibson. Um, a Gibson is a very simple cocktail, gin, dry vermouth, pickled onion. Uh, it is actually the cocktail that the Gibson room is named after, also the guitar. And then uh, for the third course, we did um, braised bison short rib with a root vegetable pave and a parsnip puree. Um, this dish was inspired off of a, uh, a chapter that he had in one of his books that was just based off of root vegetables. The root vegetable was like the main ingredient, and then whatever protein was aligned with that was actually secondary. So. Uh, the root be- vegetable pave was rutabagas from uh, Bee Heaven Farms. Also, the parsnips were were not. But, you know, the, the root vegetable pave was basically the star of that. The, the bison was a good assistant to really, like, showcase what a root vegetable pave should be like. Uh, that was paired with a Martinez, which is, again, Sip Smith Gin, uh, Sweet Vermouth, uh, Maraschino, and Orange. And then for the uh, final course, we did... Uh, the Gibson flan, which is a foie gras flan with rum, rum drunken figs. And that was served with a gin Alexander. Again, gin, cacao, and cream. Super delicious meal. Um, you know, as we were going through the meal and watching the film at the same time, it was something that I took incredibly personal. And I think a lot of people, as the film started to go and, and the meal started to go, you saw people's, I think, demeanor change because like the the actual film, the documentary goes from very light, Charlie Trotter is on top of the world to more of a, you know, a darker time in his life and all the way to the end of Trotter's, that Trotter's was around for 25 years. And, you know, it's funny that we did this on January 15th because it was Ariad's seven year birthday. And, you know, a lot of talk was about the fact that Char, uh, Trotter's made it to 25 years, which for a restaurant of that caliber, 25 years is a fucking lifetime. You know, it was a beautiful event. Um, I, I hope that we did justice to his food. Uh, it seemed like Chef Norman was very happy and, and very proud of the stuff that we did. So I thought it was, it was great. So uh, now you're going to listen to the Q&A of Chef Norman and myself and some other weird curveballs as we do right. in Pancom podcast fashion right after. So I'll just note a uh, quick shout out to uh, the other sponsors, not just Sip Smith London Gin, but also uh, San Pellegrino, Aquapana, Steelite, and Event Factor, which Event Factor was super clutch 
Well, Event Factor made us look like we were super official. Exactly, yeah. yeah. We had, like, two guys mm-hmm. on the mixer doing the things. My biggest thing is that they had the whole, like, separator. Yeah. You know, like, it separated them from the crowd, and it looked right. like we were incredibly official. And I'm like, who the fuck are we right no, now? No, it was pretty wild. Um, so if you haven't seen the film, I would kind of I mean, you can just continue listening to this now, but I would suggest maybe that you pause the episode, go watch the movie, so that... The experience of the episode is like with the context of the film. In the show notes, in the description of this episode, there will be a, a link to rent or buy the movie on Amazon. Uh, and if you use that link, we get a little kickback. So thanks, Jeff Bezos. Um, he's Cuban. He's Cuban. Is, uh, where, where did he go? He's like an eighth Cuban. Is he, a, is he a Palmetto guy? I don't, I don't remember. I think he went to Palmetto. Um, so yeah, go do that. There will be a link down there. You can watch the movie on Amazon. And then come do the Q&A or stick around and, you know, whatever, however you want to do it. But I think that's probably the move. So go do that. And you're back. Okay, great. So here's the uh, Q&A with Mike and Norman Vinnigan. Welcome back. Thanks to our sponsor, Aganorsa Leaf Cigars. Aganorsa Leaf is renowned throughout the world for its signature flavor that possesses all the great attributes of Nicaraguan terroir, along with classic Cuban aroma and flavor. Aganorsa Leaf is pleased to announce a brand new edition of Guardian of the Farm, Cerberus, named after the mythical three-headed hound that stood watch at the gates of Hades. This exciting new Nicaraguan puro uses 100% Aganorsa leaf tobacco and is wrapped in Aganorsa's new Corojo 2012 cover leaf, which adds a level of complexity to the blend, adding light spice and a rich, smooth body to the blend. When you smoke one of our world-class blends, you will experience the difference between ordinary tobacco and Aganorsa leaf. That's why we say our leaf is our strength. Learn more about Aganorsa leaf and use their store locator and find a cigar shop near you that carries their products at www.aganorsaleaf.com. The two of us smoke Aganorsa Leaf cigars often. We also offer them to a lot of our guests, like, for example, Dave Arvello, who every time I post a picture of a, a Cerberus mentions to me in my DMs or in a text how cool the band is, which it actually is a pretty slick-looking band. Um, but also, I just want to note a little personal anecdote here so it's not all totally straight-up red. I can say that uh, Michael Beltran will absolutely not only vouch for the quality of Aganorsa cigars. Yeah. But you met a uh, Miami legend and handed him an Aganorsa cigar. I did meet uh, uh, a Miami legend. I was smoking nearby Alonzo Morning, and we had a conversation about cigars, and he handed me one of his, and I went inside. I bought this exact same cigar, and I handed Alonzo Morning this Aganorsa cigar, and I said, try this. Thank me later. I mean, if that's not an endorsement, I don't know what is. Aganorsaleaf.com. All right, you've heard us talking about the barrel here on Pancom Podcast before. It is a sleek barrel-style cooker with loads of capacity that represents a new way to grill. Gets you great results in a fraction of the time that it would take you to cook, let's say, a rack of ribs on an offset smoker. The legend of the barrel has only gotten greater. They're running around town winning cooking competitions left and right, including taking first place at FIU's North Miami Brewfest for Best Eatery. They're not even an eatery, people. No, they're not. I'm not saying they could hang with Nick making omelets in the morning, but it's still pretty impressive. Some South Florida chefs have even started to use the barrel in their restaurants. That's fucking wild. 
If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for your backyard. Trust me. You can get yours at BarrelTheBBQ.com. Use promo code PANGKONG10. That's PANGKONG10 for 10% off of your purchase. The barrel is a hand-welded barrel-style cooker with a chimney at the center of its base and a rail that runs along the circumference at the top. So you can hang ribs, pork belly, whole chicken, salmon, cheeses, dips, sauces and all manner of other stuff along the edge whatever you want alternatively use the grill rack up top to sear meats or grill veggies directly over the coals use a pizza stone to cook your favorite pies the versatility of the barrel is a thing to behold (laughs) mike you've used the barrel tell the people about what you did with it yeah my favorite thing with the barrel was actually the grill on top you know like obviously you can cook all the meats underneath it but the fact that you can cook you know, some veggies on the side, or, you know, if you want to cook cheese, I didn't use the pizza stone on top, but that's a very interesting idea. I think that the versatility of the product and the fact that you can cook a whole meal in one barrel, you know, makes it pretty versatile. I mean, a whole bunch of meals. So when I I had some people over for uh, one of those fight nights at my house. Epic Nick fight nights. One of those fight nights and uh, did a lot of chicharrón. So I just lined pretty much the whole edge of the barrel with, with pork belly. And had that be uh, an appetizer, a thing, and also some ribs. How did that come out? Came out great. Yeah, I came love out that. great. I also had a, a past guest, Louis Estrada, Chef Louis Estrada, was wow. there, was on hand to try yeah. the the chicharrón that I we made. I love that. So and yeah, what, was, what were his, what was his feedback? He was a fan. He uh-huh. he was familiar with the barrel already. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Seen that um, chefs all over know about the barrel, all the way to Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, all the way to Brooklyn. Again, barrel the BBQ promo code Pang Kong ten to get ten percent off of your order. Tell the people barrel the BBQ Pang Kong ten. Barrel the barrel the BBQ dot com dot com. Pang Kong ten. That Pan means for ten. some wild reason you will get ten percent off your purchase. When you go to buy buy the barrel, that's right for all of your needs. That's right, and you want to get all the accessories too. All get all the accessories, all of, them. All of them. good stuff. Introducing the newest line from Jura Estate Cigars. Twenty Acre Farm is a complex, refined, and medium body cigar with a super oaky and cedary notes, accompanied by a whisper of white pepper and a bright hint of citrus. Built at La Gran Fabrica. Drew Estate in Nicaragua using a velvety, and I mean velvety, Ecuadorian Connecticut shade grown wrapper. Under that wrapper is a sun-grown Habano binder and a filler blend of Nicaraguan tobaccos from Esteli and Jalapa in perfect balance with the opulent and majestic Florida sun-grown leaf. Florida sun-grown is also the name of the farm where that tobacco is lovingly grown and harvested by Jeff Borshoiks, who's the guy you see in this video playing behind us. Uh, on his pristine 20-acre plot of land near the central Florida town of Claremont. I have actually been to that farm, along with plenty of other cigar tobacco farms in Mexico, Central America, and the Dominican Republic. And what Jeff, who, by the way, is a very nice guy, there's actually a cigar box signed by Jeff hanging on my wall. Uh, What Jeff is doing there is super legit. Uh, So it's always cool to see products like his, which is the only premium cigar tobacco grown in Florida, um, in products from a company like Drew Estate. Plus, 20 Acre Farm being a Drew Estate product means it's the creation of master blender and Pancom podcast guest, Willie Herrera. Support our guests and sponsors. Get it online 
Ask your local cigar shop about 20 Acre Farm by Drew Estate. Learn more about Drew Estate and use their store locator to find a cigar shop near you that carries their products at DrewEstate.com. That's right. I'm probably going to smoke one of those right now. I, what are we waiting for? Andrew doesn't know how the lights work here yet, so this is going to be real fun. Andrew knows how I like the lights. Oh, that's 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 where they're going to be. That's me. That's where they that's where they're staying. That's where they're staying. Regular listeners of this thing know how much Mike is uh, uh, pleased by this. Uh, so that was the film. Uh, I want to thank everybody for coming. Uh, thanks also to the sponsors whose logos we have here because we are professionals. Uh, Steelite International, on whose plates a lot of your food was. Sif Smith, which has me talking how I'm talking now. Um, Event Factor, responsible for these screens and our two new friends over at the mixer, making me look like I know how to set up cables and things. Uh, and Aquapana, San Pellegrino, Nestle Premium Waters, all of that stuff. If your things were fizzy, it was because of them. Um, so I, I think uh, that an appropriate way to lead into this would be with quotes that we have cited many times with one of our guests uh, from his episode of the podcast, uh, Ricardo Paullosa, in, in his signature vest over there. Uh, there it is. Look at all those pockets. If you need things stored, he's your man. Um, uh, we, I know he doesn't listen to the podcast because he's the only person here paying with paper currency, um, but... <laughs> We very often reference uh, his episode of the podcast, especially when he gave, I don't think simultaneously, you know, one right after the other, but two definitions of art uh, or two uh, qualities of art that came to my mind when I saw this for the first time. And one of them, and when I saw this and when I saw the menu, which I think one of them is especially relevant, one of them was that it's a, a reflection on emotion and ideas. Uh, and the other was that it's... Uh, conversation with your tradition, right? When, when I stepped out with Mike to sort of huddle a little bit, he mentioned, you know, a lot of this stuff is very 1985. But that's part of that dialogue, right? You're having a dialogue with the tradition of people who've done this before you. Norman, of course, is, is one of those people who did this before you and, and under whom uh, you learned to do the things. So with that, uh, I'm going to turn on the other microphone and uh, hope for the best here. Oh, well, well, you guys will talk a little bit. There's not really much of a timer, but when we shift to q and I'm going to ask you to share one, and I'll pass the other around. No yeah. Love that. <laughs> Love that. Let's make sure we're sharing his and you keep using yours. Yeah. No one wants me with a microphone at all. <laughs> Ever. Woof. Man, I came out at the tail end of that, and um, the last 25 minutes were intense. I wish you would have been there for the first 25 years. Yeah. I bet. <laughs> I bet. Because <laughs> if you think that was intense, that young man was the definition of intense. Which this film, which I uh, was very wary about being made, demonstrates. And I'm very pleased that... Uh, the director, Rebecca Halpern, and uh, the producer, Renee Frigo, and the Trotter family uh, 
gave me the permission to, um, not just permission, but volition to be, to be there and to, um, to uh, open up the way that I probably was afraid to open up to because when people said, we're gonna make a movie about Charlie Trotter, I'm like, you're gonna slaughter my brother and you're gonna ask me to participate, which didn't really turn me on. But um, I've, I made sure that Charlie's mother, first and foremost, and then Charlie's sister, Anne, who both appear in the film, um, now they said, no, this, we, this is, we endorse this. So, in this, in, and it's not apparent in the film, but this all took place from a very, very tough filmmaking period, time period during the pandemic. So Rebecca Halpern, who the primary person because she's director, um, she had tools taken away from her that many directors, of course, have, which is the ability to get on a plane, go places, interview people, do all this stuff that you would anticipate being part of a documentary. That was not the case. But fortunately, and this has a lot to do with things like Mr. Trotter, Charlie's father's, um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, 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 the eight millimeter films that go back to the beginning, that was there. And then Charlie's avalanche of postcards, primarily, and letters, that was there. So it gave great, a great opportunity from a storytelling standpoint to make this film remarkable. Don't you agree? It is, <laughs> it's a trip for me to see this movie again. And I'm so grateful, Michael, that you and your team have done this here in Miami. I have been uh, able to, hmm. the first time I saw it was at the producer's house. And they, and they wanted me to get on a, 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 a FaceTime call right after it was done with the director in Los Angeles and with Ray Harris, the guy who put up the primary financial, and, and, and asked me if I would respond to the movie almost in the moment. And I was like, fuck you. <laughs> Fortunately, Renee had a pretty good-sized backyard, and I went for a walk, you know, because I just was devastated, not because of the film, but because of the memories and the, um, the emotions of it. But um, now I've seen it doing, doing great, great events like this, although this one's particularly great. Um, in Nova Scotia, and Chicago, and Orlando, and Miami, and who knows where else we'll do one. Actually, there's other, other dockets on the, on the book, and people you know, chefs you know, like Scott Crawford, Matt Bolas, we're, we're planning on one. But um, I met Charlie when Charlie was like 21. Charlie was, Charlie had just gra graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he came to the restaurant where I was not qualified to be the chef of, and, um, and uh, came into the kitchen and asked me for a job. And I said, well, we don't really need anybody right now, and aren't you a busboy? 
And don't you think you have other things to do? And he was like, in his mind, he was like, I'll be back tomorrow. And he came back tomorrow, and the next day, the next day, and you saw Carrie, who was astonishing. Carrie was my sous chef. She should have been chef. I should have been sous chef because she was more talented than me. But somehow my horoscope worked out better for the owner of the restaurant. <laughs> this was the 80s, folks. <laughs> and Charlie, um, but Charlie... Um, he, he, he was remarkable, but you, you know, when you first meet people and you start, first start working with them, I don't think you have the capacity to realize the arc that they could be on. This movie helps us realize that there, there are people in our midst that could be on an arc like you are, that is going to redefine the nature of the business the nature of the artistry of this business. Charlie and I connected not only in cuisine ways, but also music and literature and heroes. We had heroes like, like Henry Miller and Bukowski and, and people you might not expect Charlie to have as heroes. Charlie had heroes like uh, the, the chefs like Giraudet. I had lunch at Giraudet's home with Charlie. Charlie led me to so many experiences that I will be eternally grateful and transformed by. If it were not for Charlie, I would never have been able to have been in the places that I got to. He became the door and the road in many ways for me to, to um, move past my Key West hippie self, my Miami, here I am way down here in the south, I'm not in New York, I'm not in Chicago. He, 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 he brought the larger world to me and um, he never ever ever um, forgot the beginning. And so when he would do one of those astonishing dinners, and he did so many, and he brought chefs from all over the world, I was brought in too. And so I got to interact with Alain Ducasse and Roger Verger and you name it. People I would never have met had it not been for Charlie. Does anybody want to talk next? I have a microphone. Um, I think when I watched the documentary, one of the things I, there's a lot of that, how much did Charlie impact people just in Chicago? But I think how much Charlie impacted people all over the country. You know, they didn't really talk about a ton, but for me, it's something that, I mean, Charlie impacts my food even today. You know, when I, when I look at his work, and I've studied his work a ton, um, the things that Charlie did a long time ago, people still can't wrap their mind around today. And I think that's one of those things that you know, his food and the impact that he'll have that he had with food is going to be felt for a very long time. And not just that, the people that worked under him have gone to, you know, levels that, you know, I mean, it's obviously pretty impressive, um, just like yourself. And I think the, the bond that you guys had is something that I, I mean, I, I always admired from afar because I started working for you when I was very young. So... I got it. I get it. I'm just. I get. I understand. Younger, younger. Um, 
But the camaraderie that you guys had, the connect, like the connection that you guys had, is a lot of community that I've always aspired to have. And I think the impact goes farther than just food. You know, it goes to community. It's uh, working with other people. It's how do you drive other people around you, and not just to be better chefs, but to be better people. And you know, again, I arrived at the tail end when it was changing, but I think that his career um, and the impact he had on so many other careers is felt just much farther than food. And I know I feel it now, and it's a lot of times like this dinner was something that um, we actually had every chef in the whole company um, from all five of the restaurants work on this menu because it was something that I was like, I just don't want to fuck this up because the food is, it's not just like, we're not just putting food together. I mean, we're trying to do food that hopefully Charlie would be proud of. Charlie would be very proud. I was, uh, I was so impressed with so much of it. And then in the middle of the second course with the, the salmon terrain, I'm like, I didn't want to, you know, like be one of those people on my phone in the middle of this, but I wanted to text you and say, Charlie would love this terrain, man. This is like so killer. That's good. We just followed the recipe. <laughs> I mean, we just followed the recipe. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't, I won't take credit for, I mean, we literally just followed the recipe and it's, it's like that with so much of his flavor combos and, and the things that he did. And um, I think that the impact of the food and the whole community that he started is going to be felt for a very long time. So, Charlie, Charlie united so many people. I mean, I would, not, I would not have met Emeril had it not been for Charlie. Charlie went to New Orleans for an event, I guess, with Emeril or, or something. And Charlie and I were already, you know, super tight and he came back from that event and he says you have got to meet Emeril you guys are going to be like so close you're going to be so tight you're going to love this guy he's going to love you boom it's got to happen um and it was just after that that I was invited to come down to um Santa Fe to do this symposia uh on American cuisine Charlie was invited Emerald was invited. I had not met Emerald up to that point. And, uh, and so this is early. This is 89. Uh, and Emerald had just opened up Emeralds. He had been at Commander's Palace. And so we all converge on uh, Santa Fe. And um, we were asked, the three of us plus two more chefs from other parts of the United States were asked to speak about why we cooked the way we cooked. What was the uh, what was the um, inspiration for us to cook the very various ways that we did? Now, you know, if you would have dropped a bomb on this building that morning, you would have killed half of all the restaurateurs in America. I think it was a hugely important group of people. Ella Brennan was there. Gordon Sinclair was there. You name them, they were there. Daniel Ballou was there. I was on stage with Charlie Emeril. Um, Lydia Shire from Boston, uh, Tom Douglas from uh, Seattle, and us two, us three. And um, 
And the night before, we were all in the bar of this hotel, and Charlie's like, you got to meet Emerald. So I'm like, he takes me over, and Emerald's standing there, hadn't met him. Remember, this is long before the Food Network was anything, and <laughs> Emerald's like holding his a glass of bourbon or scotch or something, and it's, it's the, the ice cubes are shaking around like crazy. He goes, he, you know, Emerald's not from New Orleans. He's from uh, Fall River, Massachusetts, yeah. Massachusetts. And his accent is a little different. He goes, Norm, Norm. Nobody, nobody calls me Norm, but he does, and so I don't care. And he goes, Norm, are you going to make the speech tomorrow? I'm like, well, we have to, don't we? He goes, are you going to make a speech? I'm like, well, I guess so. I mean, kind of. that was the whole deal, right? He goes, oh, I don't like to talk in front of people. <laughs> Emerald. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this, is, this is how the infancy we were all in was. I mean, we're blessed, Mike, to have been a part of the American food world as it came of age in what was called New American Cuisine. The magazines were just starting to write about food in ways that were not French, French, French. They were starting to write about the geographical pull of restaurants in America. Alice Waters, Paul Bourdome, Barry Wine, a person most people may not even know that name anymore, but he was instrumental. Larry Forgione, people like that. Um, Jeremiah Tower, one of my great heroes. Patrick O'Connell still doing it, right? And, and, and we, one of the things that was so important about doing this movie to Ray Harris, the guy that put up the money, the guy from Morgan Stanley, the guy that didn't die in 9-11 because he was on the plane coming back from France, said we can't forget about Charlie. Can't forget about not only Charlie, but the whole, the whole entirety of, of what American cuisine evolved to. I, I know Charlie in some of the scenes, if he was watching the movie, he would die. <laughs> the plates, he'd be like, oh, that's not the way my food looks anymore. You know, he would, like when he was slicing the ostrich or something, it was like, oh, I know Charlie would just be so upset because that was his perfectionism. I mean, just never, never, never changed. A lot is made in the movie about Charlie being uh, a tyrant. I just can't square that in my mind. I just can't. I met Charlie so, what? He was a perfectionist, for sure. He wasn't a tyrant. He wasn't a dick for being the sake of being a dick. I mean, he just, it was, he was so, you know, he was so focused, so focused. I mean, anyway, I mean, you know, Charlie and I, I mean, at the end, in, at the end, we were, some of us, trying to get him to go back to being Chuck. We wanted him to stop being a victim of his own pressure. I said to him, oftentimes, I was working at um, Tuyo, where I met a young man named, well, I didn't meet you, this after that, but the second place you came to work with yeah. me, and I, and I was be walking in that hallway outside on the phone with Charlie and going, Charlie, what? Why don't we just go back to the Keys and just open up a place with a jukebox and a pool, pool table and have some fun? 
you know, before it's all over. He was like, yeah, I got to do that. I got to do that. And then he'd send me um, videos like W.C. Fields or some terrible band from the 90s or something. <laughs> I mean, but a, a victim of your own pressure is probably the chef's biggest crutch. So many. For sure. I mean, so many that if it's always said it, if you want to be great, you have to be your, your biggest critic. You yourself. I mean, I've obviously I take criticism from so many, but there's nobody more critical on me than me. And it's hard. Um, and we've all felt it. I mean, we all feel it all the time. It's like so many people and I mean, Trotter's was what Trotter was for 25 years, right? It made it to 25 years for a restaurant that's crazy. Today, that's, uh, today is actually Ariette's seventh birthday. To, to be seven, I feel like it's nuts. And to reach 25, I mean, so many people have critiqued you in that time frame. So many people have... But at the same time, with so many critiques, so many people were like, man, you're doing great. And at the same time, you walk away like, that guy's full of shit. <laughs> I, it happens all the time. Like, man, you're doing awesome. I'm like, but I could do better. But you know, you did this thing. It's like, yeah, but it's not enough. And I think Charlie's heroes, Miles Davis, Coltrane, Dylan, I mean, who, the, who, were the hard, who was harder on themselves than those folks? And that, and that was pure essence of Charlie. In America, though, I think we need to like come to terms with realizing that we should not be always looking for the next hottest, newest, whatever, trendy, whatever thing that there is. I think we need to like revere restaurants that um, are neighborhood restaurants, that are, that are humanistic restaurants. I mean, we just, because what happens to these people? I mean, Grant, when I heard Grant was gonna be in the movie at first, I was like, why? <laughs> I mean, those guys were like, but I've got to say, I think having Grant in that movie yeah. provides a pivotal opportunity to explore the dichotomy between those two things. You know, I mean, Grant, God bless him for saying what he said. You know, that's, you know, he sees himself in that, that, you know, that, he could be that person, or he will be that person, and, and, and it's tough, it's tough. I hope to God, you know, that you are gonna watch this movie and go, give my, give, give yourself a little bit of breathing room now, because what, what happens? Are you gonna like throw yourself on a sword? Like, uh, you know, if they don't get three Michelin stars, are you gonna hate yourself? Are you gonna stop wanting to cook? Are you gonna lose your passion? You can be like that fool in the menu? I still haven't seen that movie. Yeah, I know. <laughs> have you all seen the movie? Yeah. Okay. Seen, how many, raise hands. How many people have seen the movie The Menu? Not a lot. Not a lot. Not a lot. Well, it's a satire. It's a satire. And it's, it's, I think I wanted to walk out of that movie after about the first 10 minutes. I thought, I don't need this shit. It's Sunday. <laughs> Then it turned a corner for me as, as satire, good art, art will. And um, I'm not saying it's you know the greatest movie I ever saw, but it's pretty damn good. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a lot more. Yeah, I've seen. So, Nick, you think it's time for Q and A or no? 
You think so? Yes. All right. You want mine? Give me the mic. Can I order a drink before I give you the mic? Go. <laughs> what do you order? Mozzarella sticks for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any uh, questions out there? Any answers? Oh, go. Miguel over here. Miguel had the hot steak all day. Oh, yeah. I, if you guys don't follow Neil Massage on Instagram, follow me. I have the best steak I've seen all week. We won't, we won't talk about that right now. <laughs> um, but I've had a couple of drinks already, so I'm a little looser than the two of you guys, and I may Perfect. You know, just talk for a couple more minutes. Um, for those of you that don't know, I actually got the opportunity to work for Chef Norman um, as a chef de cuisine a number of years ago. <clears throat> and you know, when Is Mike, opportunity the right word, though? Opportunity or <laughs> blessing or, uh, I don't know, there's many beautiful adjectives I could give to that experience. Um, and a couple of bad ones too, but we won't talk about those. <laughs> Nothing to do with you, though. Um, <laughs> Shout out to Sip Smith Jim. Sip Smith does her job, apparently. Nice work, guys, in the back. Love I, I remember uh, when I first interviewed for Chef Norman, it's probably like 2017 or, or something, I don't, I don't remember. But, uh, you know, we sat in a room and he asked me, you know, tell me about yourself as, as a chef, you know, how, what was your story? And, you know, hearing Chef Mike at the beginning of, of the movie, that he was talking about the books, uh, Charlie's books, and it reminded me of my own experience um, and why I chose to become a chef. And actually, Charlie is is a part of that. You know, I, I'm a product of Miami. I was born and raised here, and Miami is very much a city where um, the flash and the trend is is given priority, right, for restaurants. <laughs> so growing up, I had no idea about seasonality. I had no idea, you know, that the food was what made restaurants a restaurant. Um, and it wasn't until in my early 20s, I was studying hospitality at FIU. I did an internship, <clears throat> and on my day off, and I was working at a hotel in Marriott, suit and tie, the whole thing. And I had this grandiose vision of myself, you know, opening up a Copacabana or something crazy like that, right? Crazy lights and a stage, and there's going to be dancers and Cuban food and salsa music and all these things. And I go on Google and I research what are the best restaurants in the world. This is like 2008 or 2009 or something. And much to my surprise, I find this huge list. You know, Pellegrino had just been starting at that time, and Michelin Guide was starting to make a couple of waves in America. And I had never heard of any of these things. And one of the names that popped out was Charlie Trotter. And I said, who the heck is this guy? Right? I've never heard of a chef, you know? And, and I, I find name after name, Chef Charlie Trotter, Heston Blumenthal, Norman Van Aken, Thomas Keller, Eric Repair, and, and this whole list of guys and, and girls. And I'm like, who are these people? And why is everything about the food and nothing is about the flash, right? And then all of a sudden a spark came upon my, my head and I said, maybe I should start to look at the food. And I, I really swear to you that was the day that I probably decided to be, to start looking down the path to become a chef. And Charlie Charter's name was in that Google search. You know, so fast forward a bunch of years, I buy Charlie's books, 
lessons in excellence and all these things, lessons in a wine service. Um, I go to New York and I was a busboy, much like Charlie, working at Restaurant Danielle. And I walk up to the chef and I said, I want to be a, a cook. And I said, you're crazy. You know, he's like, look at look where you are. You know, this is a three-star Michelin restaurant. I have a stack of recipes. Why the heck do you want to come in? And I said, I want to learn how to cook. And, and you know, I remember telling this story to Chef Norman in my interview. And you and Jeffrey were looking at each other, just giggling. And I had no idea about the backstory of Charlie being a busboy, coming up to you, and before I was even born, and saying that he wanted to go. Oh, that way. Maybe I was a few years old. Uh, maybe you weren't reborn. Maybe, yeah, exactly. Maybe I was, you know, and I was, I was thought of at that time. Um, but, you know, it, it, was, it was such an amazing experience. Um, many years later, uh, you know, after I decided to start cooking and things like that, I actually had the opportunity to go dine at Charlie Charles restaurant. Uh, this was circa 2011, and one of my best friends, uh, who I hope to introduce you one day, Chef, um, but Mike knows him very well, John Tancano. Um, he right now runs a, a two, two Michelin star restaurant in DC, and Gano and my Gano's and my my friendship is very much like you and Charlie. You know, Jonathan was this young guy in Miami. Um, who I kind of pushed to like break out of his shell. And you know, now he runs a Mission Star restaurant, a Mission Star restaurant license in DC. And the first experience that Jonathan and I had dining together, the first Michelin star dinner that Jonathan ever had was at Charlie Trotter's when I took him to dinner there in 2011. Um, I'll never forget that night and neither will he, you know, and it's just the two of us sitting there. <clears throat> and this now goes to much more of the Charlie thing. I remember Charlie walking around the room, um, and I remember talking to Jonathan and saying, we're gonna order a Chateau Lafitte. You know, that's a, that's a big, heavy wine, especially for some 20-year-old kids to be ordering. A Chateau Lafitte is like five, six hundred dollars a bottle for a half bottle. Right, but, but I remember reading in Charlie's wine books that, and this again goes to the prowess of Charlie as a chef. He would alter the menu according to your wine. And I didn't believe it, right? I read it in the book and I'm like, there's just no way this guy does this, right? You, you gotta be a freak of nature to be able to do small changes in the menu, the acid, uh, the butter, the, the oil, the whatever, the salt, to accommodate your wine. It's almost like if he had a reference for the wine. And I said, I'm gonna test this guy out. We're gonna order the Chateau Lafitte. And Jonathan's like, all right, let's do it. So we order Chateau Lafitte, the bottle comes out, you know, 1995 something or other, Bordeaux. And I swear to you, from the moment that they opened that wine until we took the last sip, every course had a different flavor of the wine. It brought out something else. And we were blown away. And I was, I can't believe that they did this, right? I'm like, is this just me getting drunk on the wine? Or is this guy <laughs> actually altering the menu to fit the wine? 
right? Um, fast forward a few more years later, I'm working at, and I'll end, I'll end here because I'll probably take up too much time, but I'm working at Time Out Market, and it's the first night that I ever have my own quote unquote restaurant of my own, right? It was a pop up, but whatever. It's my first thing, my first solo venture. And it's a friends and family night, and Chef Norman and, and Chef Mike both had uh, uh, spots in the market. And Chef Norman walks over with, with a gentleman, a short, short statured man. Uh. <laughs> and I'm like, who is this? And he goes, Chef uh, Miguel, I'd like to introduce you to Larry Stone. <laughs> and my jaw dropped because Larry Stone was the sommelier in the movie, right? So it, it came full circle for me, and I really thank you, Chef, uh, for that experience because, you know, I, I remember like maybe eight, ten years before dining at the restaurant, ordering the Chateau Lafitte wine, reading the guy's book about wine service and excellence and all these things, and all of a sudden, Larry Stone comes to my table and he says, well, what do you have to eat? You know, and I got to cook this man a meal. So for me, it was, it was a very cool moment. Um, I appreciate that, you know, and I don't know if anyone, anyone else in here is a chef. I'm assuming there's one or two maybe hospitality people in the room. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you don't know Charlie Trotter or if this is your first kind of expose to Charlie um, or to Chef Norman, you know, it, they really did an impact, and this is just one small story, you know, for me. There's thousands of other cooks around the United States or the world that were impacted by this guy, um, and by their legacy, by his legacy, and, and the, the changes that, that he did. You know, it, it's incredible. So, uh, you know, thank you everyone for here, for being here. Chef Mike and Chef Norman, thank you for taking the time to do this, you know, Nick. I almost told you shut me. Supposedly this guy makes a great omelet. But anyways, I'll give the mic back. Um, so it's not really a question, but it was just more of a, uh, you know, a, a story I wanted to share. Um, hopefully add a little bit of value to the evening uh, by doing that. Thank you. You haven't even had it. You said it's a nice one. Yeah, I mean, hey, yeah, there might not be that. Uh, also, since you mentioned, I don't know who else here is in hospitality. Uh, I'm not going to shout out everybody who's in hospitality, but when we did our second live dinner at Maxwell Brothers, we had one person come in from Connecticut for that absolute shit show of a podcast that we did. There were actual t-shirt cannons involved. Uh, and she brought a Pez dispenser because apparently that's where Pez dispensers were invented. It was a disaster. No, nobody here came in from that far. However, the Orlando contingent co collectively, I think, has beat her out on miles traveled to get to a podcast. So I want to thank uh, Tom over there with his family, one of Norman's partners, and also the, the, the Soseki crew over here. Uh, this is tremendous. This is, again, uh, among the things that blow our minds continuously. Yeah, that would be better if you want Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here you go. Your name's on the same. Oh, you're going to go back to me? Yeah. I mean, uh, are there any other questions? Yes. 
Mike, how can you let a Valen guy lead the... Uh, That's a shocker, right? Boys. I'm, I'm shocked every time. First of all, I'm from Miami. I went to Columbus a long time before you did. But still. Uh, <laughs> Norman, you live with great friends. Emerald, Charlie, I've met them both. They're great guys. They volunteered. What? How many times they cook at the restaurant in Orlando? Least. Uh, Norm, I know I've, I drank with Emerald till 3 in the morning, so I don't know with Charlie. <laughs> So, but and, uh, and, and Dean and a few. Yeah, others. Dean, we sang. That's a different story. <laughs> that's a, that's a different story. I was very impressed with his first wife. I got to be honest. In the film, absolutely. Right. Yeah. She. I think when he lost her, where's Janet? Janet had to be close to her. Right. Were they very close? Well, yes, for the short period of time that they, Charlie and Lisa were together. But we were at the wet. We were at the first wedding. With Lisa and Charlotte. I think, you know, we guys know Lisa better through this film than even in real life. She's, uh, I think she has, provides a lot of syntax to this, to this movie. It's really great. She, 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 uh, she provides so much. Yeah. So the real question is did you both have a go to dish of each other? That's the real Charlie question. Charlie and me? Yeah. Was there something? Of yours he loved, and was there something? Charlie like always talked here like this. Always, sorry, Charlie always wanted me to make either the conch chowder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you going to be No. Ironically, the foie gras. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the Don Allen. The French toast, right. Um, and, well, see, Charlie was loath to have anybody's suggest that he would make any dish twice. But me and Emma would always love giving Charlie a little bit of a, a ribbing because whenever we would go and do a uh, big gala, whatever, together, we had to cook for a whole lot of people, Charlie always, seemingly, always made a terrain. Because he could make it in Chicago and ship it and it was done, and then he could just like slice it at the end and it was all set. Smart. Smart. Yeah. Any, any? Oh, I want to shout out Noah for a moment. Uh, people who listen to the podcast, uh, I think a lot of the Orlando people, you know, whenever we do our party recommendations or our shameless plugs and all that, all the things music plays, Noah has made all of our all the things music. Nobody in this room, including Mike and me, has done more for this podcast than Noah. That's correct. That's correct. It's, it's a pleasure to be able to contribute any way I can. You know, a small thing that I noticed in the documentary was the use of photography in, his, in Charlie's cookbooks. And I think over the years, uh, photography, obviously, I, I'm, I'm a terrible food photographer. I try all the time, but it doesn't work. But one of the things I noticed is that, obviously, you know, you eat with your eyes and, and, and pretty food looks appetizing. And over the years, Norman, with your cookbooks, and I know Ariad Hospitality Group, you know, uses photography in so many different ways. Can you talk about photography and how that has become part of your craft? You said sure, now you're gonna turn to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're the one with cookbooks, not me. Oh, I need to back up a half of a microsecond before we move completely off the shouter. I have a big, I have to say thank you to Ricardo Payoso, who wrote an entire poll on the Kong shouter. <laughs> 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 
question? Can we, later on in the Q&A, could we get together to read that poem? I'm sure I could find it. I know you're a paper currency guy, but I'll find that on my phone. I asked Michael to have a tattoo made of that poem on his arm, and so far he's rejected me. So, the photography. Um, Charlie, like always, uh, was extraordinarily um, generous, and um, a person who does not get credit in this film, and he should is Tim Turner, who was the photographer for 98% of everything that Charlie ever published. Tim Turner, most humble guy, amazing. He doesn't even use his own name on Instagram. It's like Blue Cooks or something. It's I don't even know why. I mean, but Tim, Tim was there from the first cookbook and through everything pretty much. Sometimes Charlie would say, well, Tim's great at food, but I want other people to do the people shots. But Tim was, like I say, he was the champion of Charlie's cookbooks. And I wish he was here so I could give him a shout out because he's such a gracious and lovely person. And then when uh, Random House invited me and, uh, to, uh, and Jana to write the third or fourth book, um, Charlie goes, wait, you got to use Tim. So we did. And, uh, and, and that was an experience because <clears throat> that was the first time I had anybody of that capacity um, to, to do my books photographically. And, to, and so, yeah, we, you know, we're, we're, we're living in another age. Back, you know, when I first bought the cookbooks that were my, stop smoking this shit, man. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> If I can't give him shit, nobody in this room can, right? <laughs> I love you. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, the first books I ever got, like Wild By, were published by Morrow, William Morrow Books. This is around 82. And it was the three-star chefs of France. If they had eight photos in their books, that would be it, max. And so, um, but now we live in this age. It's another age. It's a very visual age, the age of... Uh, Instagram and TikTok, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we are much more dependent and reliant and need to be fed by the images as much as by the ideas of the recipes. I got, I got a buzzer. Yes. So when I worked for Chef the second time was book five, four? I, I don't know. Six. No. Five. So I wasn't really, I didn't really understand. I had no fucking clue what it took to take pictures of food at all whatsoever. And then, um, you know, he's doing this book and then we have photo shoots for the book. And I'm like, this is wild. This takes like, it's a team of four people and there's seven dishes per photo. And it's all, and it's like a lot of fluff. You don't know that some of this food is not edible and it's, it is edible and it's like all this, and it's really was an experience. So I would say that, I mean, he's a thousand percent right. We're living in a very different age now. Like I like the cookbooks that had eight photos in them because the recipes usually work a lot better than the ones today. And <laughs> so like, but that prepared me in some way for the shit that we live today. Because, like, the stuff that we live today, 
I mean, we have to take photos. I mean, I have I have a team that takes photos of stuff all the time, <coughs> and they work. Like you know, they're a nine to five employee, and because of that experience, I'm able to give them better coaching because I was like, well, I saw it this time. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but like I I saw them do this. Maybe that'll work, and it does the majority. But of the time. we as chefs sometimes go. Just put the phone down and eat the food. <laughs> <laughs> just put the food down. Just put the phone down and eat the food. We just like, oh my god, it's, they're more wrapped up in that than the conversation with people, with their, you know, interacting with the food. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to say, oh, you must eat my art and shut up. No, that's the whole thing. Talk to each other and enjoy the food and. And, you know, maybe your granddaughter's there and you can have a few moments with her at the same time. And if you're always setting up the shot and always doing all that shit, you're just divorced from the actuality. And we've never had this before in our culture. Stop. Yeah. Enjoy. These damn phones, you know, today, they can do anything. Well, I mean, uh, I think we're, we're living in a very interesting time. Yeah. And Something that I talk about a lot exhaustingly in all of our restaurants is like, uh, restaurants are one of the last places for a community to have a conversation. And that happens over food. And if you're having a great conversation, having a great experience, usually the, the phone and the whole thing and all that stuff is put away. And I don't remember who said it, maybe you said it, maybe Nick said it, maybe Miguel said it, which is, you know, everything is about like the glitz and the glamour and the the smoke and mirrors and the bullshit. But like when you go back to like real true food, like what was that Trotters and so many of these legendary like new American chefs and just really chefs all over the world, like none of that shit existed. What existed was real food and a real experience and a moment and a time that you'll never forget like what you were talking about with Jonathan and Jonathan also runs a two-star and a one-star just saying but just to correct but just like that moment and that experience like you will remember for the rest of your life and I've had I've been fortunate enough to have so many of those experiences at restaurants with great food and great service and great hospitality and stuff that I'll fucking never forget. And, you know, the photography, I think sometimes it, it does, you know, like it, divorcing yourself from the experience is a great way to put it because you have forgotten what you're really there for, which is to experience a moment with someone else and have this like beautiful experience with it. So the world is changing. I think we're agreeing that to be in the restaurant business, to be in the hospitality business, is the greatest thing I could imagine as a place to go to work. And I'm, I've been in this business as a crook for 50 years, five zero. And you know what I'm doing next month? I'm opening up a new restaurant. Nick, you're so, you're so on it. Yeah, I mean, I'm a few steps. I'm a few you know, beats and, up. And, and, and loving people say to me, "Why do you want to keep doing that?" And I'm like, "Well, because I just still like making plates. Yeah, I still like making flavors. I still like working with teams." And so, um, uh, I'm, I'm I'm so grateful that I get to continue uh, 
doing this and I'm doing it with uh, my, my friend and my partner Tom Wood right over there and uh, Courtney, uh, Courtney's mother and uh, the family, the Wood family and Janet and um, of course I'm going to make sure that both Michael and Miguel and a few others in this room come and do dinners with me because I love sharing that time and space with you all. Well, I think uh, we're are we winding down. I, I, I think we can. Uh, are there any questions left? Uh, yeah, are there any are other there any answers left? I, if there, yeah, if there are no questions, I think do we want to end on putting the guy on the spot and asking him to read? I have a I have a couple of thoughts before because uh, the looks like man, he looks angry at me. Are you mad at me? No. Okay. <laughs> it's the chair. Yeah. It's the chair. He's doing his job. Nice work. <laughs> I think my, my thoughts before we hand it over to someone that's much more well-spoken than I am. Um, some, no, definitely not Nick. Um, some of the things like, I took away from that, and I think this really matters, which was that you, know, you put the most pressure on yourself when it talks about winning awards or what those awards mean. And you know, how they hang over your head and it's this gigantic chip on your shoulder and the pressure you put on yourself to get there, the pressure you put on your team. I put a lot of pressure on myself. And I think a lot of us in here that are hospitality people do as well. Because I feel like, you know, winning a Michelin star for us was amazing. Um, but at the end of the day, when I look in the mirror, I don't do it for awards, and I never did, and I never wanted to. I did something because I wanted to change the perspective on what a certain type of cuisine was looked at. And the end result was an award. The pressure of that award after the fact has not changed the way that I look at my food, and I look at my people, and I look at my business. And I would never look at someone across the table and say, you are my enemy. And I think that everyone in the community should be that way. And I'm not saying to be like me. I'm just saying to understand that we're all part of a community that's trying to make food and beverage and hospitality and the community of all those things better. And I think when we look at it as a competition, like it's me versus you, we have already failed and we're giving them what they want. Because if you look at the end of this documentary, they painted a picture of someone that was evil and then they said that he was great. When he really was great the whole time. They will always paint a picture of what they want you to think that you are. But you will always know who you are at the end of the day. No matter what award you have, no matter what thing you've won, how many times you've been nominated for a beard, how many times you've fucking lost, it doesn't matter. And I think that Miami is this incredible melting pot of food it's this incredible, incredible melting pot of culture. We have these mavericks, trailblazers, people that set the road for us, like Chef Norman and other people like him. And we're just fortunate to be here and to continue doing that thing for our fellows in Orlando and people all over the country. Like, don't get lost in the sauce, is what I'm trying to say. Don't get lost in the sauce. Like, you know, we, I'm, blessed every day to have friends like Chef Norman, friends like you guys, Miguel, 
Brenda, Noah, all you guys. It's just like, this is what it's all about. And I think, you know, I, I, I came out after putting out the entree and came out at that one point and it really struck me. And I was like, man, like they are painting a picture of enemies when really we are all family. And we all want the same thing for each other. And I mean, I, I can't tell you how blessed I am to have a friend like Norman and so many people in this room that everyone is just doing their thing and trying to push this whole thing forward. And that's what it's really all about. So now I'm ready to give Ricardo my guest. Yeah, yeah. he, he wasn't told that this was gonna be happening, but I'm gonna ask you to I'm gonna ask you to come. Get up and oh. come. Yeah, yeah, you oh, come, you come up this way. I know, he's not happy. He doesn't want to. He's not happy, but that's okay. But he went to the Typical Bolin behavior. Yes. <laughs> All right. So I, I think this you is a... You want to have my seat? Yeah, let him have it. Yeah, unless he's not a stool. Yeah, we got to get rid of this guy. Sounds like a sentence. So uh, I'll, I'll let Ricardo I'll let and Norman provide a little context, but we're going to have him read that poem about the comp chowder. I don't have the poem. I have it. Oh, welcome to the future. You mean on that little box? On this little box. This is what's happening now. I think this is a good note to end on because I think it's a good example of, you know, an illustration of the kind of thing that the work of a person like Norman, maybe a person like some of the other chefs in the room, maybe a person like Mike, uh, can inspire in somebody who is not. Oh, yeah. Wow, talk about being put on the spot here. <laughs> well, and, and, actually, and actually, I'm sorry, just to, to provide a little bit of, because I want people to understand how, how fortunate we are to be, you know, uh, in, in this kind of situation. So, Ricardo was a guest on the podcast, for those who don't listen. Um, I'll, I'll read the, the bit from your bio that we put in the, the text. No, it's, it's happening. Deal with it. Uh, Ricardo became a friend of mine when we met through the Belen Alumni Association because he learned that I was working at Cigar Snob Magazine and after this first uh, meeting of uh, entertainment, arts, and media section of the Alumni Association, he came to me and he said, can I have some? Uh, and so we've been sharing cigars since... Uh, I've been leeching. Right, leeching, right. Uh, his first book of poetry, Sorting Metaphors, won the first National Anhinga Prize. He published a second book of poetry in Bread of the Imagined. His third book of poems, Cuba, was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. And his latest collections are Master Impulse and Parable Hunter, both from Carnegie Mellon. I don't know if that needs updating. A lot, yeah. A lot of it. Yeah. I know, I know. You didn't want to read it, now you want to okay. read it. What, what happened here? There okay. There oh, the magic box. Met some years ago, I forgot what year it was when we first met. I don't know, but I know you were sitting at table 13. <laughs> yes, I was at that table. Um, there was a program that was uh, set up uh, for chefs to coordinate with poets to come in, and I guess it was like a, a discreet way of feeding a starving poet. <laughs> you come in, you taste these wonderful dishes, and then you would write a poem or two or three about them, and they would be included in the in the menu for April 
which is poetry, National Poetry Month, and Norman here, uh, it'll be the great honor of picking me out for, to be the poet for his marvelous dishes. And I was astounded. I said, there must be some mistake. And uh, at the time, Jennifer, was it Jennifer? Was it Jennifer? Was it Jennifer? What? No, Jennifer at New Times or whatever. She, uh, she was yeah, Jen. Yeah, Jen. And she was, uh, she said, no, 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 he actually asked for you. I go, wow. Okay. Very good. So this was one of the poems, which I haven't read in a million years. So it's uh, creamy cracked hog chowder with saffron toasted coconut star anise oranges at Norman's Crawl Meals. Sweet yeah. From the bowl's edge balcony, skirted by parsley, a little flayed orange, fourth of a kiss, half a bilabial stop, partner and stammer, pretends to be the author of its poise, though given away by the resonations of kin sent into boil to find self and joy. And what it finds is a way to melt while keeping the code without which there is no name. What it finds as well is the breast of context. What a skin is echo the stage prop and the cypress by the road, the tasseled lamp and the crumpled pillow are our ingredient language, transferences that compass, leap the merits of being singular. The orange on its pearl white rim, knowing itself a portion, but searching the anise fragrances and the toasted coconut arcs, probing the subtle panko-breaded conch strands, and the shellfish stock for its originating sign will do more than seek comfort in finding itself in this ochre chorus, the faded gold of that honey which flesh aspires to. Save the light from the flame, and you will see this mirror, though not its orange task, cheap survival, the fragment's joy, is the builder's fate. Thank wow. sight and hearing the poems and the symphonies and the paintings but it is a very intimate and powerful thing to create a dish because it reminds the body that it doesn't have to think about immortal things it can just taste them thank you that, you know, this is where we very abruptly and gracelessly end the thing. I'll note, 
On one of the high tops outside, I wish I had done this with the other three dinners and I finally thought to do it, I had extra menus and Sharpies. If people want to sign, this is not for you, this is for me. <laughs> this is for me and Mike, and if somebody goes crazy and signs like 15 menus, then I guess you can all fight over it. But I, I want a menu, Mike can have a menu, mine comes first, uh, and we'll figure all that out. But this was a very haphazard thing. Thank you all for coming, thank you Norman, thank you